Hi, and welcome to the Circle of Film podcast. I'm Ryan, and join me as we step into the Mayborn actors in today's episode. I was able to get a lot of extracurricular films watched during the month of April, and so I was able to flesh out a lot of the filmographies for the top-rated actors in May, and uh, I will... I, I So before I really dove into that, I took down what the top 10 was at that time, and so as I go through this, uh, I'll just kind of alert you all as to what kind of fluctuated throughout the time. And ultimately, the top 10 are the same 10 people as they were at the beginning, but the order is adjusted uh, accordingly. I think I mentioned uh, during the April, uh, April Born Actors episode that May is, I believe, the highest quality, uh, highest average rank uh, top 10 out of any month and the only month that even can like shake a fist at it I think is December which is quite a ways away so we have some of the top some of the highest rated actors on my spreadsheet are born in May and uh, in fact four of the top 10 overall actors on my spreadsheet are born in May as of this moment. Obviously, this is all subject to fluctuation, uh, but for the time being, we are looking at a very uh, top-heavy top ten. So, uh, yeah, let's let's just jump right into today's top ten. Starting us off at number 10 is one of the most recognizable faces in classic cinema, uh, a, a woman who who just completely uh, sort of captured the, the eyes of the world, I think, when she broke out onto the scene and then became a household name and ultimately turned into one of the greatest actresses in my opinion ever uh, and that is uh, and she was born May 4th 1929 uh, passing away January 20th 1993 at the age of 63 uh, and and her her work in film had definitely slowed uh, later in life, so I'm not sure just how much more she had in her uh, at the time of her passing, but nevertheless, uh, just every extra day that she was alive, I think, would have been just a little more, a little brighter. And that is Audrey Hepburn, one of uh, two great actresses with the last name Hepburn, uh, Audrey Hepburn, uh, 
is is in my opinion, uh, magnificent. I, I love her. I think every movie she's in, she's charismatic and just completely owns the screen. Uh, no matter what movie it is, I just I just think she's wonderful. Uh, I've seen currently sixteen films uh, that she's been in, uh, and uh, you know there are still plenty more to go. They have an average rating of 70.69 on my spreadsheet, which is fairly high, uh, and but actually ranks as the sixth highest average film rating in the May top, Mayborn top 10. Uh, and prior to my lengthy uh, foray into the Mayborn actor films, uh, she was actually ranked ninth. So... And during this process, she lost a spot, uh, which uh, I believe is due to the film. No, I, I, she act, I think her I think her score overall increased, but uh, she was just outdone a little bit by uh, the previous number ten. So Audrey Hepburn. I've seen her in four films that I've rated 90 in the 90s. One film rated in the 80s, six films rated in the 70s, one film rated in the 60s, three films rated between 25 and 49, and one film rated below 25. Uh, I've seen five Oscar-nominated performances from her and one Oscar win. She ends up with a value of 27, which is the second which is the lowest value out of the entire top 10. Uh, and uh, she, which ultimately puts her score at 103.69. Now for reference, uh, I think, let me see here. Uh, that puts her just ahead of, of 10th, where 10th place is uh, in April at this point which is still Saoirse Ronan. Uh, her score has not changed in this time. So the bottoms of these two, of, of May and April, for the first two, two actors are very similar. Uh, you know, Audrey Hepburn and the ninth place person are both at the bottom end of the top 100. So Audrey Hepburn is ranked 84th overall. Uh, which is very good. I mean, it's that's mean amazing. Uh, so let's uh, let's jump into the films. Let's look at like look, look at her movies. Like let's we'll start at the top uh, with How to Steal a Million. This is my favorite film that she has been in, uh, and I. But I'm gonna say that it's not my favorite film performance from her uh, I think my favorite performance of hers will come in a couple of films after this but I think How to Steal a Million is a brilliant film uh, to be honest it's been quite some time uh, I watched it in September of 2012 uh, and if I recall correctly um Yes, she she stars opposite Peter O'Toole, who is one of my favorite 
male actors of all time. And the two of them are just absolutely magnetic on the screen together. I think that um, they're two actors who... I think I think one of the key elements of being a great actor, uh, even in the face of bad films, bad press, bad bad uh, scripts, bad whatever, bad co-stars, I think that the true trademark of being great is that you're able to have chemistry with everybody and everything, and. Sometimes uh, there are act. I, I think, and so you know, I think that to point to look at actors that are currently living that I think have great chemistry with absolutely everybody they touch. Um, I would point to someone like The Rock. I think Dwayne Johnson, um, like him or hate him, I think he has chemistry oozing out of his body, and you put him opposite anybody on the screen, and It'll feel like they've been best friends forever. He, he just gives off that aura. He has that vibe. Um, and and so Audrey Hepburn, Peter O'Toole are also, uh, I, I was going to say victims, but you know it's a very good thing to be that comfortable around everybody you act with. It's, it's really wonderful. Uh, and, you know... Uh, likewise, um, her number two film is Charade. Uh, you know, she op- she acts opposite Walter Matthau in this one, as well as Cary Grant. And again, you know, she steals this movie from both of them. I think Walter Matthau, I think Cary Grant, they're both great actors in their own rights. Uh, Audrey Hepburn, however, just completely shines brighter than either of them and it's just it's fascinating you know she she doesn't she isn't like an overpowering presence um i was there there's someone else on this list coming up that i think is an overpowering uh, uh presence in a film and and i think that that person is is great in that way but i think that what audrey does is she really just she knows the type of role she's in in all of these movies she knows that it's not about being the loudest being the biggest being the most boisterous it's about um being so finely tuned and so well trained that your performance eclipses the performances around you and it it takes and i think i think in how to steal a million i think peter o'toole is with her a hundred percent of the way i think he matches her stride for stride but i think in charade i think Cary grant and walter Matthau don't quite keep up and not that i i definitely think they're capable of it i i think they're definitely act two actors that are you know at have definitely proven their worth and have their own extensive filmographies that are far more than, you know, the average actor. And, but I think just in charade, they just, they just don't hold a candle to, to Audrey. She's, she's fantastic in it. Uh, Her number three film is the children's hour. 
let's see here. The Children's Hour is another one that's been quite some time. September of 2012. Uh, two women that manage a girls' school are accused of unnatural relations. That does not jog my memory whatsoever. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. Children's Hour. Uh, I... I if, if if time permitting, I would love to like go back and reread all the synopses of every single film that I'm probably going to mention in this episode. But that's like a over like 200 films, and and I just do not have that luxury. Um, but uh, okay, I'm, it's coming to me. It's coming to me. Audrey Hepburn, Shirley MacLaine, James Garner. Uh, Audrey and Shirley accused of being lesbians. Why about one of their students? And it, it was, you know, directed by William Wyler, who I'm very fond of. This is, <laughs> it's 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 just I I think that for this film to come out in a time and. You know, I, I I think Wyler does a really good job of presenting this idea, this this homosexual relationship between two women, that, but without it without it feeling like the the problem, you know, like without it feeling like a bad thing that it's potentially happening, but also it you know I think it has to walk that line of. It can't fully support it because of the time it was made, which is kind of a shame. But I, I think Weiler inches as far as close to that that side as he possibly can, given the time period. And the the relationship between Audrey and Shirley MacLaine in this is is beautiful. I, I think they're great. Uh, James Garner is fine. Uh, he doesn't exactly. He, he kind of pales uh, 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 next to Hepburn and McLean, unfortunately. Uh, I just I don't think he's quite. I, I don't think he has quite enough presence uh, to really stand out ne uh, amongst them. But he he's definitely serviceable uh, in in so far as what they need him to be. But then on top of that, you have uh, this girl. So the girl that accuses them, uh, Mary Tilford, playing, played by Karen Balkin, who really only ever had the one role. Man, she is the, the worst kid ever. Like, you know, it, it's a, definitely a film that kind of parallels The Hunt. I don't know if, if you've seen The Hunt starring uh, Hannibal. Um, Mads Mikkelsen, you know, that follows a very similar sort of premise. And I think both films uh, manage to address these problems in a very tasteful and also... Uh, you know, also like acknowledging that there really is a problem with the way things are being conducted at the same time. And it, it's, you know, I think that the circumstances in 
children's hour are far more uh, far more difficult to believe than the the circumstances in the hunt i think that the the accusations in the hunt are a little bit more expected which i i hate saying uh but i i do think that you know i i think that the hunt I enjoy the hunt a little bit more simply because it's coming from a place that I feel is a, a lot is more dire, and I think that the situation in Children's Hour is a lot easier to peruse and and quickly realize that it is not the case of what Mary is claiming that it is a homosexual relationship. I think I think that's pretty straightforward. Her fourth best film. The film she won an Oscar for, the film that I believe is her best performance, is Roman Holiday, starring opposite Gregory Peck. It is a gorgeous and beautiful romantic film that highlights everything great about Audrey Hepburn. She is, I believe, her most beautiful in this film. Her costume and makeup and... and dress design are all on point and refined and perfected down to the last stitch. And then on top of that, she is playing the cutest and and sort of most adorable version of of any character she's ever played. Uh, She is a princess, sort of taking a, quote, Roman holiday with Gregory Peck, who is a reporter who thinks he's got a great story, they fall in love, etc., etc., etc. Bada bing, bada boom, happy ending. And man, it, it's you know, like that's the kind of plot of a movie that comes out today, has a 13% on Rotten Tomatoes, stars Catherine Heigl, and you go to the movies to see it and hate watch it. And yet, back then in the 50s, it comes out, and it's an uproarious success. It it just compl- it launches Audrey Hepburn to to stardom, and it it it, it shoots her into the stratosphere. And it's just it's it's unparalleled. Her performance is. I mean, I okay. I mean, I, it's not like it's one of the greatest performances of all time that's a far more difficult list to 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 manage but it is a very 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 good performance and she you know i think most people naturally associate her with her role in breakfast at tiffany's first and foremost i think she is far more iconic in her role in roman holiday so that is those are the four films of her of Hepburns that are in the 90s. Uh, she has one film in the 80s, which is the just-mentioned Breakfast at Tiffany's. She was nominated for Best Actress for this performance. Uh, the reason... I, I think this is a really good movie. You know, it's another romance movie of hers. But what holds it back is I think that the the male lead does not have the kind of... Um, I don't know what you would call it. Um, 
He, he just doesn't have the chops uh, to really stand up next to Audrey, as well as someone like a Gregory Peck or like a Cary Grant. You know, George, uh, George Pappard is, is not... just not that kind of a guy. And I, and you know no like he's he's a fine actor but he's not he's not a household name. Uh, if I hadn't said it, I bet most of you wouldn't have been able to pull that name out of thin air. So that that is part of why Breakfast at Tiffany's is a little bit lower on the rankings for me than some of her other films. The other reason is because of the incredibly awful yellow face uh, that Mickey Rooney has. You know, he is not Asian, doesn't look Asian, and then plays Asian in the most racist way. And I've I've said it before on the podcast, it takes a lot, it takes a lot, a lot, a lot for me to forgive blackface or any other kind of actor or person playing a different like skin color than their own um, insofar as my rating of the film you know I'm never going to be I'm never going to fully approve of it at all except for um, Robert Downey Jr. and Tropic Thunder but I can excuse it insofar as the film it's in and this performance in breakfast at tiffany's is is kind of inexcusable it, it it's completely unnecessary and the character in and of himself is completely unnecessary so i think breakfast at tiffany's is great but i do think that it it definitely has a couple of of major weak points a, another Oscar-nominated performance for Audrey Hepburn is in The Nun Story. Uh, this one I've seen actually a little more f- recently, but it's still one that I don't remember very well. It's not super vivid. Um, I do remember liking her performance more than the film it's, that surrounded her. I think that the film is a little contrived, a little remedial but that audrey's performance kind of pushes it up into this rating of of a 78 so that's so that's uh, the nun story another oscar nominated performance for her is in sabrina uh, sabrina is another great film great you know very enjoyable very fun um and part of her sort of foray into being in like dance musical films that I really don't understand. She's not really that kind of an actress. But I think that all the other female actors were doing that at the time. And it just seemed sort of made sense. You know, you, you look at something like My Fair Lady which you kind of end up with the same thing, which is Audrey Hepburn's voice being dubbed by Julie Andrews, who sings beautifully. And, you know, to to her credit, Audrey is 
very convincing in the role and very convincing as a, as a singer and miming the words, but it's completely not the same thing. She's, you know, in this day and age, she would have been trained to sing, and I'm not sure, you know, I think at that point, you know, she probably shouldn't have been in these movies. Um, but they're still very good, even if they would have been better with an authentic singer. Uh, Two for the Road, which is one of the most, which is the most recent Audrey Hepburn film I have seen, is a very interesting one. It, it, it it's sort of like a post-romantic drama in a way that touches on life and relationships in a very unique style. It, it skips around in time and does not let you get your bearings. Uh, you know, you're just kind of expected to pick up on these subtle uh, wardrobe differences and makeup differences, which generally, you know, I, I think for the most part, I was able to follow those. But there were a few times where I wasn't sure if we were moving forward or backward in time. And so, you know, it can be a little bit confusing. But the performances are, I think Audrey is great. I don't really think that... Um... Let me see, I can't think of his name. Albert Finney. I don't think Albert Finney is is anywhere close to to Audrey Hepburn in this movie, though. I think I think some people think he is. I am staunchly opposed to that position myself. Um, in My Fair Lady, uh, she is actually in a singing role, but she doesn't sing. Uh, her voice is dubbed over by Julie Andrews. And that's for the best, I think. Uh, you know, Julie Andrews has an amazingly beautiful voice. And I'm not sure uh, that Audrey does. <laughs> um, which is fine, you know, she, she doesn't need to. She's a perfectly incredible actor regardless. Uh, but I don't... I think I've seen her in one or two musical type of roles and both of them or neither uh none of them are, are her actual singing voice so there is that to to be considered uh she she does suffer from that weakness oh what just happened am i still recording did our power just go out are we still recording? I think we are. Okay, the power the power just went out. Uh, it flickered for a second, um, but I think we're I think we're okay. Um, where was I? Uh, yeah. So uh, another role she was Oscar nominated for uh, is Wait Until Dark. She plays a blind woman defending her home against uh, would be thieves. And it's pretty crazy. Uh, if if you didn't see uh, Don't Breathe last year, it's kind of in the same vein as Don't Breathe, except 
the blind person is the good guy instead of the bad guy, which is very, I mean, it, it was it's very interesting. And, 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 you know, she's a little older, so it's a little bit more of a mature role for Hepburn, for Audrey to be in, which is also a, a welcome change for her, in my opinion. Uh, you know, she didn't act as long as she de- definitely probably could have. Uh, or nor was she as prolific as she probably could have been, but she did a lot of great stuff. Um, you know, looking down here, the Lavender Hill Mob is a much a much smaller role com- uh, by comparison. Then we have the handful of bad films that I think she's been in, uh, with Love in the Afternoon. Uh, Darcy Bustle's Looking for Audrey, which she's kind of in, but kind of, I mean, she's like interviewed for it, but like the movie was released like years after she died. Um, A film called uh, Always, Always, I'm not going to be able to find it. Oh, there it is. Okay. Uh, Which I described as a firefighter pilot lives on it. Oh, right, right, right. Oh, I watched this recently. Um... Oh, I can't think of his name. Um, uh, he, he, uh, I don't know. He kind of like, it's the about this guy who dies. And then from beyond the, from the afterlife, he's like affecting the people who live on. And Audrey Hepburn has like one scene where she plays his angel, essentially. Um, not good, not good. <laughs> and then her worst film of the 16 that she's been in, in my opinion, is They All Laughed, which I saw three years ago. Uh, I describe it as three private investigators trail women that are believed to be cheating on their husbands. I gave it a 24. I really don't remember anything about it other than it's really bad. <laughs> it's awful. Uh, so... Audrey Hepburn, number 10, 85th overall with a score of 103.69. But we are burning daylight. So let's let's move on to number nine. I've seen 25 films for this actor. He was born May 24th, 1953, still living. Um, and uh, as of the moment I'm recording this, he will turn 64 tomorrow. Uh, he is ranked 67th overall, and that is Alfred Molina, uh, perhaps best known as Dr. Octopus in Spider-Man 2. Uh, he has also had a very prolific uh, British career, as he is from uh, the English land. And uh, so... His average film rating is a 67.08, slightly lower than uh, Hepburn. He has not been nominated for any Oscars that I'm aware of, uh, and his stat line uh, reflects that. But he has a very high dense, uh, a very high density of, of quality films under his belt, and the disparity between Audrey and Alfred is as a nine film difference and most of those films are being spent by Molina improving his value which is a 39 uh, as opposed to uh, Audrey Hepburn's 27 which is how he is able to have a higher score than her 
His score ends up as 106.08, a little more than 2.3 points, or almost 2.4 points ahead of her. And it is his filmography of which that I have seen is led by "Prick Up Your Ears." Um, "Prick Up Your Ears" is not my favorite film uh, of Molina's for sure, but is I do believe his best film. Uh, I rated it a 94 uh, out of 100. I saw it five years ago. Um, he and Gary Oldman uh, actually they play. Uh, gay lovers they're uh, i forget which one of them is a playwright one of them is a playwright i think it's molina but i'm i'm not sure completely uh and and but uh, the the chemistry and dynamic between alfred molina and gary oldman in this film is stunning to say the least uh it is worth the price of admission in my opinion and i am i was very just i, I was just in awe watching them perform together uh, the story, I think, is slightly weaker. I, I don't really remember much of it at all, but it's it's elevated by Alfred Molina, Gary Oldman, who are phenomenal. Um, and it, it's from uh, the late '80s, so you know they're both much more in their prime, younger, more emotional uh, uh, sort of sort of stage. And I think that that serves their characters very well. So prick up your ears, his highest rated film. Next is an education. Um, gosh, another film I saw five years ago. Uh, and he doesn't have a super big role in that one. If I remember correctly, it's mostly, um, I want to say Carrie Mulligan. I want to say... Peter Skarsgård, Skarsgård, I think, are, are kind of the main characters in it, and he has a supporting role for the most part. Um, next, there is the voice talents that he lent to Rango, which is a underappreciated animated kids movie. It's it's hilarious. I I, I love it. It's incredibly enjoyable. Um, Again, I think Molina is more of a secondary character in that. There's also Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, uh, for which, oh man, um, and and Molina is one of the bad guys, I believe. Um, looking up the t- name of his character, uh, Satipo. Satipo, Satipo. No, that's not what I wanted. Uh, so he is, again, you know, not a main character. He generally isn't the main character. Um, outside of Prick Up Your Ears, uh, Love is Strange, which is his fifth highest rated film. Uh, you know, I, I guess I would kind of give him second billing in Spider-Man 2 almost. Um And then Frida, he has a huge role in Frida. But for the most part, he he doesn't really take over the film as a main character. He lends his uh, talents as a supporting character who more often than not is, is shining and, and stealing the show in their own right. Uh, you know, particularly 
um, looking at, uh, say, something like, uh, man, so many of these films I haven't seen in so long. Oh, boy. Um, uh, geez. It's a little bit more difficult. Something like, let's say, Species. I don't think Species is a good movie. Uh, it's his 23rd out of 25th rated film. But in Species, I think Molina, you know, he's a minor character, uh, secondary character, but his performance is very good. And given the fact that the movie is sort of like B-movie, horror schlock type of a fest, uh, and a lot of the actors are playing it to that type, I think Molina is the only one who truly figures that out to the best of his abilities. And, you know, he's not putting in an Oscar-worthy performance by any stretch, but he's putting in, he, he's giving his performance just enough quality uh, on top of his B-movie schlock that most of, that the rest of the cast just really aren't doing. You know, and you've got the likes of Forrest Whitaker uh, around you who is an Oscar, Oscar-nominated uh, actor, uh, maybe winning. I don't, can't recall off the top of my head. Uh, so, you know, he he's above heads and shoulders above the rest of his cast in Species. Um, just to kind of name a couple of these movies, I'm terribly sorry. I don't really remember much. Uh, you know, he has a small role in Boogie Nights. Um, Spider-Man 2 is probably the thing I'm most familiar with uh, and could most speak to. I think he's brilliant as the sort of maniacal Doc Ock. Um, and, you know, as this is the best Spider-Man movie, he is easily the best spider-man villain as well and i don't like he's definitely not the type of person you would expect to be in like an action movie uh particularly like i don't know like doing the stunts like i don't know if he did his own stunts but like he doesn't actually have to do much because he's in this apparatus that is fighting for him but this was this was a huge change of well watching it for when i watched it i didn't really know who he was but knowing the history of his filmography now, this was a huge change of pace for him. You know, he's not, he's a dramatic, uh, comedic, lighthearted actor. Um, occasionally he dips into the dark side. <laughs> uh, but this was like a, a really like hammy, cheesy, just going all in on this role. And it paid off incredibly. I, I'm kind of shocked even now thinking about that performance and how he was able to mine that character out of all of these roles that he's had in the past that really aren't like Dr. Octopus. Very strange. Uh, he has a minor role in Magnolia, minor role in Coffee and Cigarettes. Coffee and Cigarettes, he plays himself opposite Steve Coogan in, in my opinion, the funniest vignette of that film. He has a role, significant role in The Imposters with Stanley Tucci, I want to say, uh, which is also very good. Uh, that's his 10th highest rated film. We're moved in, we've moved into the uh, films rated in the 70s at this point. He did a voice in the animated DC comic film Wonder Woman. Uh, he had a secondary role in Chocolate. Uh, like I said, he had a very large role in Frida opposite Salma Hayek and I think I believe Salma Hayek got nominated for her performance in Frida I think that though that that 
Molina was just far superior. I think he didn't get the spotlight as much as she did in the movie. It's not about him. It's about her. But I do feel as though he outperformed her almost, you know, start to finish. He's in Maverick, which is very good. Uh, He does a voice in Monsters University. Very good. He has a role in Identity, which I haven't seen in a while. I want to say, I think he plays one of the identities, but I, I don't recall perfectly if that is the case or not. Uh, moving on, he has a voice role in Strange Magic, a, a cult favorite of mine. He was in Whiskey Tango Tango ugh, Whiskey Tango Foxtrot last year. Uh, he plays opposite Johnny Depp in Dead Man, which I think is just okay. Uh, and then we move into the bad films, uh, Prince of Persia, The Sands of Time, where he's playing like an Egyptian or a Persian, probably a Persian. Uh, the Sorcerer, Sorcerer's Apprentice, which is led by Nicolas Cage. Mm-mm. Species, which I mentioned before. Uh, the Da Vinci Code, uh, which I think is... is He's a villain in that, I think. And then his worst film from, I want to say, 2015, Will Never Have Paris, starring Simon Helberg and Melanie Linsky, I think. Ooh, I'm not sure. But Alfred Molina is in it, and it is an awful, 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 awful film. So, Alfred Molina, I'm always, like, excited to see him in movies. I I think he brings a lot of gravitas to every role that he touches. He definitely has the sort of um, look and, and appearance that you want in sort of, like... I mean, I mean, I guess not as much anymore now, but he, he, when he, when he was younger, he could definitely pull off sort of a villainous mastermind incredibly well. Now he's sort of matured into uh, a sort of whatever. I guess what I guess it, it, what I would say is like his role in Love is Strange with. Uh, oh, I can't think of his name. The guy from Third Rock of the Sun, voice of Lord Farquaad from Shrek. Um, from season four of Dexter, uh, the Trinity Killer is John Lithgow. Fuck John Lithgow. Uh, yeah, him and he and John Lithgow are brilliant together, and it's a it's so interesting to compare his performance and relationship with in Love is Strange with John Lithgow to his performance and relationship in Prick Up Your Ears with Gary Oldman. You know, they're both these homosexual relationships. He is very young in Prick Up Your Ears. He is much, much older in Love is Strange. And yet, uh, you know, you have this sort of manic, uh, anxiety-ridden and and problematic situation going on in Prick Up Your Ears that he puts and yet he you know he's able to put together this performance that really navigates that scenario well and yet then you move on to love is strange and it's very more subdued it's 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 much more calm and and introspective and more concerned with just like you know this is 
things are the way they are already and he's just kind of going through the motions and he still managed to give a lot of dimensions to that performance and that character uh, you know so he he's definitely figured that out as far as playing like as as far as maturing into these new roles that he's taking on so i'm very much looking forward to uh, the future performances of his um, looking on IMDb, uh, wow, he's got a lot of films upcoming. Um, whew. Uh, so there's Vivaldi, which is just announced, Road to Capri, pre-production, Henchmen, pre-production, The Overcoat, which is a short film, filming. Uh, he's going to be in the new Showtime series, I'm Dying Up Here, as the role, in the role of Carl Weiser. He... He's going to be a voice in the Hey in Hey Arnold the Jungle movie and then he's filming for a movie called Saint Judy. Uh, so that's what he's got coming up next. Hmm. All right then. So, that is number 9, Alfred Molina. Alfred Molina. Moving on, number 8 with just 18 films. Um for, with an average rating of 76.67, uh, the second highest average film rating of the May top 10 actors. Uh, this actor was born May 12, 1983, the youngest person on this top 10. He is just 34 uh, as of May 12th and is ranked 24th overall. So the top eight of May are all in the top 25 which is crazy. So that's like a third. So they're on the top 24. So that's literally, that's exactly a third of the top 24 are born in May, which is a hugely disproportionate number of people. Uh, but I mean, I'll go through the names and uh, they'll, they'll all make sense to me. Maybe, maybe, maybe not as much to you, but to me. Uh, so this is Domino, shit, I fucking pronounced it wrong. Donal Gleason. Donal Gleason. Uh, he is he um he has an a value of 40 so a point higher than Alfred Molina never been nominated for an Oscar uh, but his his very high average film rating boosts him up to a 116.67 10 points higher than Alfred Molina which is ridiculous and it is just a swath of very highly rated films that he has been in in the last three or four years. Uh, it doesn't really go back much further than that. We start out with The Revenant, uh, where he is basically the third build actor in that movie behind Leonardo DiCaprio and Tom Hardy. Uh, he plays the captain of the military group uh, that... that um, Hardy and DiCaprio's characters are initially a part of, and he does a pretty good job in that. It's not, you know, anything outstanding or, or revelatory, I don't think, but he is able to, you know, he, he doesn't let himself be, become completely outshone by DiCaprio and Hardy in that movie. He's able to keep up with them. I do think that uh, Tom Hardy and Leonardo DiCaprio are better actors than Donald Gleason is currently. I mean, you know, we'll see as things progress. 
but that's how I feel current at this moment. Uh, and he's able to keep up with them. He he doesn't really, you know, he he doesn't let them run away from run away with it. I think they still beat him in the end, but he's able to uh, hold his own for the most part. Uh, next up, he has a sort of a smaller role in Calvary, uh, where which mostly follows his father, Brendan Gleeson, who is a pastor. Uh, and it's a brilliant film. Uh, Brendan Gleeson is is incredible in it. But at one point, he goes to this. He goes to prison and meets with Donald Gleeson, who I think is playing like a pedophile rapist. Which, having seen him, because Calvary was kind of he hadn't broken out yet when Calvary was made and came out. So this was this is like a very strange role to see him in now, given what films he's been in since then. But he is he is on point. He, I think he needs to branch out more. You know, he's kind of played a lot of sort of um, inner thought, rom commy kind of roles, um, and I'll kind of like identify that as I go forward. But I really wish I would love to see him branch out a little more. And I think they tried to do that with The Force Awakens. And I don't know if it was the writing or or something that got lost in translation, but I don't think it works as very well in The Force Awakens. Uh, his third best film, and the on, the last of the films of his that have been rated in the 90s, is Ex Machina. Uh, I would definitely put this in the sort of inner voice uh, rom com type of thing. You know, he kind of just develops a relationship with... Alicia Vikander's character. But this is, in my opinion, his best performance that he has given. He is phenomenal in Ex Machina. And, you know, the idea of playing opposite a human woman while pretending to be, while knowing that she's supposed to be an android, but at the same, or, or well, artificial intelligence, while also trying to convince trying to like convince himself really that she's not just an AI she is potentially real and and trying to like work that whole math problem out I think he does an incredible job of of walking that tightrope uh you know he Vikander got a lot of the spotlight for that role for that film I guess Isaac did too the three of them are, are just fantastic together but and I think with due cause, I think Vikander is by far the best uh, actor in that movie. Or gives the best performance in that movie, I should say. I don't think that she's the best actor in that movie. I would say Oscar Isaac is. But, you know, his... Perf- but but uh, Donald Gleason's performance is, is fantastic. And it has to be subtly layered in a way that is very difficult to do. And I think he does that quite well. Uh, so if, if there were anything I would point to that might say that he is as good of an actor as Tom Hardy, Leonardo DiCaprio, Lisa Vikander, Oscar Isaac, I think it'd be his performance in Ex Machina. But he doesn't quite yet have the, the depth to his resume as far as performances go that I think warrants putting him in a best actor and, and you know type of thing. Definitely a rising star, but I, I think he's got a long way to go. Moving on to his fourth highest rated movie is Brooklyn. Uh, he plays one of the two love interests to... Um, I can see her face. 
Oh, uh, man. I'm not doing well with names today. Uh, I'm going to find it. I'm going to find it. Oh, geez. This is taking longer than I wanted it to. Why do so many movies have the word Brooklyn in the title? Uh, Saoirse Ronan is who I was thinking of. Saoirse Ronan. Um, and I think that film is really Saoirse's. Uh, you know, Donald Gleeson is fine, I think. I actually think that like sh she had better chemistry with the other guy, <laughs> not him. Because uh, if, I, if I believe... I believe that she moves to New York, to Brooklyn, meets the guy who's from there, and they started to develop feelings for each other. And then she goes home and meets Donald Gleason about halfway into the movie. Uh, it takes a lot to like win the audience uh, when you're coming in at that that late of a point. And I don't think he was quite up to the task. Um, not that it was necessarily all of his fault, but he just didn't really give off the an approximate vibe for for what was necessary for that role um there's also frank he plays opposite michael fassbender in a paper mache head which is ridiculous and incredible uh, i think it's a great movie but i do think it's fassbender who keeps the movie going and he, but he only is able to do so by playing off of um, Donald Gleason's character, and Donald Gleason, to his credit, is able to keep up with yet again another actor that I think is ultimately better than Gleason uh, in in Michael Fassbender. But uh, Gleason is is there; he's right there, kind of every time. You know, he's always finishing second, third, and and placing in these events, but he's just not quite good enough to ever become ever be first um it'll be in I, i'd love to see a film i'd love to see him really take hold of a performance and and rise above the rest of the cast and really show me that he he does have what it takes to do that but i have not seen that yet um like i mentioned star wars episode 7 the force awakens uh his role is very minor it seems very one-dimensional uh, hopefully he gets a ex more expanded and layered role in in uh, the Last Jedi, but that remains to be seen. So we'll see how that goes. Um, but yeah, his performance in the Force Awakens was weak and and did not feel like it fit with most of the other performers in there. Um, next we have. Dread. Uh, Dread is amazing. One of the earlier roles that that uh, Donald had, and it's a most it's a very like minor role. If I can find the character he played, um, like yeah, he doesn't even like have. A significant role. He plays a techie for uh, Lena Headey's clan. You know, he's not doesn't even have a named character in this movie, and so like he doesn't have a lot of 
I, I might not even have lines. I'm not sure. So, you know, it, it, essentially he'd be kind of the equivalent of playing like the the fire guitar guy in Mad Max Fury Road. You know, you recognize him. He stands out, but he's not really acting. He doesn't really have to do anything for that role. And I think the same of the same is true of Donald Gleason in Dread. Uh, but then he has a much more significant uh, role in True Grit. Um, definitely overshadowed by the enormous cast of this movie with like some of the greatest, some great actors, Jeff Bridges, Matt Damon, uh, even Haley Steinfeld, I think, outperforms him, which is fine. You know, he's not in this movie to to be an acting powerhouse by any stretch. But again, you know, that just goes, just continues to show like, he has he's in all these incredible movies he has this great potential to uh you know break out and he's done so you know he's in everything but he's yet to pull off a performance uh that really signifies that he can like lead a movie and and really rise above what is kind of expected of him next we have a couple of harry potter movies uh where he plays bill weasley yeah bill weasley and uh starting out with deathly hallows part one and then deathly hallows part two which are the only ones he was in uh and you know he fits right at home as a weasley for sure uh these are one of his first roles i think that i can remember you know no one really knew who he was but they just needed a red-haired kid (laughs) well like adult almost uh and he fit the bill so he's a fine bill there's nothing wrong with his performances in those uh anna krenina uh is again another film he's playing that sort of rom-commy role again but just like in brooklyn i don't think he does enough with what he's got and the film's mostly about characters that aren't him Uh, perrier's bounty i don't really remember much of that but I don't believe he was a major character in it. Uh, About Time. He's a leading role in About Time. Son of Bill Nye. He discovers he can time travel. Uses it to woo the girl of his dreams. Realizes that time travel can be very problematic. As as you think. Uh, Again, another rom-commy role for him. Uh, He plays this one really well. Uh, It's not like outstanding, but it's just really enjoyable. He, he's having fun in this role. It's easy to tell. He, he likes what he's doing. He, he's enjoying himself. And by proxy, you're enjoying his performance and you're enjoying the film through him. And so he does a really good job of maintaining uh, that atmosphere in about time. And if Bill Nye weren't in this movie, he would finally have a film where he like rises above the rest of the cast. You know, he does he outdoes like a, a very young a, a younger Margot Robbie. Um, he definitely outperforms Rachel McAdams, but Bill Nye is just too strong in this movie. Despite not being in it as much as Donald Gleason is, his sort of fatherly advice figure kind of role is is too is just. He, Bill Nye just comes across as so mature and understanding and aware of just exactly what he's what is going on and what's being done and the movie that he's in that he is able to outpace Donald Gleason, unfortunately. 
Six Shooter is a short film um, where he has a very minor role with like one line. We'll move past that. Never Let Me Go. I think he's one of the main three characters. With, along with Kira Knightley and Spider-Man. The Amazing Spider-Man. Andrew Garfield, I believe. Those are the three. Maybe Don Gleason isn't one of the main three. I think he is. Uh, I don't remember. It's kind of a sci-fi. It's an interesting, good... It's a good sci-fi movie. Uh, deals a lot with more with characters and interpersonal relationship drama than anything else. Which, you know, as I've said, is something that Don Gleason excels at. And he excels at it in that. Next is another short film, I believe, called Corduroy which I don't remember <laughs> at all anything about Corduroy short film from 2009 an autistic woman experiences the sea I believe that Don Gleason plays her caregiver caretaker so and largely ins- uh, insignificant uh, his only average rated movie is Shadow Dancer starring uh Jeez, starring Children of Men guy, Clive Owen. <laughs> Clive Owen. And Donald Gleason, I think, plays kind of like a bratty thug sort of Irish guy. I'm glad he's moved away from like very stereotypical Irish roles. I think that they do not help his case for being a good actor. But understandably, you know, this is one of the earliest movies he made, and that's kind of all he was able to get at that point i'm guessing i think perrier's bounty his role in that was very similar so you know it's fine it's fine and then his only bad movie uh is unbroken the angelina angelina jolie directed film from a few years back he plays one of the friends to the main character i think (laughs) and um I think he's okay. I don't think there's anything special about that performance. So, Donald Gleason, probably the only name out of the top 10 that really doesn't feel like, that really feels like he doesn't belong. He's very young. He has just happened to be in a lot of highly rated films in the last couple of years, not necessarily due to his performances or, or presence in them, but just largely due to his. Um, just I guess ability to pick really good projects and I you know that in and of itself is a is a reward uh, so he's ranked 24th overall uh, but you know there's always this you know because he's only been in 18 films to this point like two or three bad ones probably drop him way out of the top 100 I would guess so he's got to be careful. You know, hopefully The Last Jedi does really well and that'll keep him afloat. Uh, but we'll see going forward, you know, if he's able to maintain uh, that high level of quality in the films that he is a part of. Donald Gleason, number seven. Moving on, number six. I've seen 35 films from this actor. He is bo- was born May 6th, 1961 and is currently ranked 18th overall, 7th in May. Uh, His average film rating is a 65.94, which is the lowest average film rating of anyone in the top 10 
during this month. But, and he's been in the most awful, most bad movies uh, in, in 11 negatively rated films. But he has also been in six amazing films rated in the 90s and 10 great films rated in the 80s, which is tied for the most films in that category with someone a little bit higher up. Uh, his value ultimately ends in a 47. He has been currently nominated for four Oscars that I've been seen films for and has won one of them for best acting role which makes his score 117.94 a little more than a point higher than Donald Gleason and that is George Clooney Clooney's best role um well not best role but best film that I believe he's been in is actually a voice role in Fantastic Mr. Fox, which is my uh, favorite Wes Anderson film, I, I think he, I think using the animated medium, he just is able to accomplish absolutely every single thing he's ever wanted to do with his um, cinematography, his his. Uh, film film style and Grand Budapest Hotel and Moonrise Kingdom definitely came very close in the live action world uh, I think Grand Budapest Hotel is uh, the next best film but I do think Fantastic Mr. Fox supersedes them just a little bit and Clooney is, is great every actor every voice actor in that cast is phenomenal uh, Clooney especially. Um, so I think Fantastic Mr. Fox, definitely number one. And then another sort of, uh, uh, sort of a tour directing style is in his second film, which is Burn After Reading from the Coen Brothers. Uh, one of my favorite Coen Brothers films. I thought you know, it's generally not considered one of their best by most people, uh, generally falling into the sort of lower end of, of the Coen Brothers top 10 in general. But I remember just when I watched Burn After Reading, I was just, I thought it was the funniest thing, film they'd ever made. I thought it was uh, just such a troll movie with the way that it was presented and how almost random everything that happened seemed to be and yet at the end of it it all just made perfect sense it all came together in a beautiful fashion and i just think it was great um and clooney is at the top of his game uh, brad pitt uh, richard jenkins uh, francis mcdormand uh they're just all they're all doing such a great fucking job <laughs> and so I think uh, Brain After Reading, another phenomenal film that Clooney's been a part of. Uh, moving on, we've got Out of Sight. The And then, I don't really have too much to say about Out of Sight, uh, but his fourth film is The Descendants, uh, which is a huge, which is Alexander Payne's best film in my opinion 
and that film hinges on Clooney and um, as well as Shailene Woodley. Uh, one of pretty much, I think one of the first films Shailene Woodley was in. And, you know, you've got, you know, much un- much unlike the very comedic elements that are in Fantastic Mr. Fox and Bring After Reading, The Descendants is far more dramatic and uh, definitely gets, gives you a good, a good vision of, of just how versatile Clooney really can be. Uh, he is, I think, his, his best roles are his comedic roles, in my opinion, but Descendants, um, and then moving forward, you know, Good Night, Good Luck, Up in the Air, uh, and the Ides of March definitely give you a sense that, yeah, he can definitely handle dramatic roles just as well. Um, you know, then sliding back to the comedic scale, you've got Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, um, and, uh, Clooney, I'm presuming, I'm pretty sure that that's Clooney's singing voice in in the movie. Um, I'm going to check that. Oh, George Clooney singing. It it filled it in for me. Um, Oh, it's not. It's not his voice. It's uh, Dan Taminsky. Who is that? I don't recognize him. Oh, that's a shame. I always thought it was his voice. It's not. Uh, so he can't sing. <laughs> he, uh... Hmm. That's kind of disappointing. Well, okay, Clooney, oh brother, where art thou? His performance is still really good. Uh, comedic role again. Um, Ocean, Ocean's movies, Ocean's Eleven being the, more, the best of the three. Uh, yeah, you would have. Ex- I kind of would have expected uh, sort of Clooney to play the straight man to Brad Pitt if I had like not, you know, prior to seeing the movie. So I really enjoyed the fact that it was reversed, that it, Brad Pitt was more of the straight man between the di- in the dynamic, dynamic of those two characters. Um, obviously, it's a much bigger ensemble, and so you've got to make way for a lot more screen time for everybody else, but Clooney and Pitt, uh, and then Matt Damon are the main three characters. Uh, so the, the three of them, a fantastic dynamic. And, you know, Clooney is just so at ease in that sort of a role. Uh, you know, along with his next film, his 10th best film, uh, the three, which is Three Kings. Uh, another sort of comedic role where he just has, you know, the, the strength, I think, to Clooney's acting. And, uh, you know, particularly in his comedic roles, I think... He just feels so natural and at home in them, almost as if he's not acting at all. And that's kind of exactly what you want. I think it's a lot easier to tell that he's putting in the effort in his dramatic roles. Uh, But there's really nothing wrong with that at all. 
uh, except, you know, you look at, you know, so some of the other films here, you know, Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, Gravity, Spy Kids, you know, these are just films he's having fun with. Uh, whereas something like Michael Clayton, which he was nominated for an Oscar for, is very much a film that, like, you see the effort that he's putting into that movie. Um, it's it's very uh, clear and... and um, backtracking just a little bit, uh, he was also nominated for an Oscar in The Descendants and Up in the Air. Those are three of the four nominations I've seen for him. Um, Spy Kids, The Thin Red Line... From Dusk Till Dawn, uh, he put he lent his voice for a little bit in South Park, Bigger, Longer, and Uncut. That's his 17th best film. And then moving into his films right in the 60s, we have his Oscar win for his performance in Syriana. Uh, then we have Ocean's 13, which I think is a little better than 12. He played himself in the Netflix special A Very Murray Christmas. He reprised his role in Spy Kids 3D, Game Over. And then Ocean's 12, I think, is his first average film. Alongside uh, last year's Money Monster, which I think is pretty decent in. Uh, I think the performances in that movie are good. I think the movie itself kind of lacks... Uh, explanations and and reason a lot of the time and then his other average film is Solaris which I think is just fine it's not anything special moving into his bad films or into the 25th so he has he has 11 films rated below 50 uh, nine bad ones two awful ones Tomorrowland was unfortunate uh that seemed like the perfect movie for Clooney to be in. It's kind of that nonsense, wacky, silly kind of a role, a la Burn After Reading, Fantastic Mr. Fox, Spy Kids, that kind of thing. But it just wasn't well written enough. Um, Intolerable Cruelty, uh, one of the weaker Coen Brothers films. Uh, then there's, uh, let me see this. Touch of Evil, which is a short film, um, which is simply various actors giving off uh, villainous portrayals of past characters. I don't remember who Clooney was mimicking, but the film as a whole just does not succeed well. Then you got Leatherheads, which is another very silly role for Clooney, who excels in that, opposite John Krasinski, who is no stranger to playing silly. But again, you know, this film is not well written. It's not, you know, well made in the same sense. Uh, and so it kind of falters in that way. Uh, another f a film I watched uh, in preparation for this list, The Men Who Stare at Goats. Clooney is off his rocker. He's incredible. And the film is not. <laughs> the film is not. Batman and Robin bringing up number 30. Uh, welcome to Collinwood, where he has a brief cameo. This is another film I watched in preparation for this list. And uh, it's just, it's kind of a comedy of errors sort of heist movie. Clooney is barely in it. 
and the film doesn't really have the steam, uh, despite the cast, which I think is very good. Um, the Perfect Storm is not light. I mean, it shouldn't be a lighthearted movie, but it doesn't have enough sort of relief from the tragedy that is befalling that that ship. Although it has been quite some time since I've seen The Perfect Storm. The Good German. Um, and then the two awful films. Uh, his worst film, by far, in my opinion, is The Monuments Men which is very unfortunate. That is such a great cast and could be such a compelling film. And it isn't. It just ends up being very boring. Uh, and uh, what's worse is that it's one of the films that Clooney directed himself along with Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, Ides of March, and... Uh, and then Good Night and Good Luck, he was actually nominated for Best Director that year. Um, as well as uh, Good Night and Good Luck and Ides of March, he was both a screenwriter for, which he was also nominated for each of those. So you can add, so that's seven total Oscar nominations of his that I've seen. And then the last film that is also awful, 30, number 34 overall for him, potentially controversial, is Hail Caesar. I hated Hail Caesar. It's definitely something I want, want film I want to revisit because I've heard a lot of people praising it, but it just did not come together for me. There were moments of, of I thought, brilliance of uh, as I you know, moments that I was like, oh, wow, okay, Coen Brothers still have it. This is per amazing. But for the most part, I was just not in, not excited by what was happening or what I was seeing. And so, Hail Caesar, 34, Monuments Men, 35, Clooney, 7th overall for May, 18th overall all time, wanna, you know, we're really at the top of the top right now. And uh, it's really exciting. I like that. Moving on to number six. This is an actor who was born May 12th, 1907. Uh, she is no longer with us, unfortunately. She passed away June 29th, 2003 at the age of 96. Uh, Clooney was 18th overall. This person is 17th overall, so literally the next person up. I've only seen 13 films that she's been in currently, um, with an average film rating of 76.54, the third highest rank uh, average film rating of the top 10. The r biggest reason she is so high up, it's not her value of 28, it is her 11 Oscar nominations of the 13 films I've seen, and four Count them four Oscar wins, uh, the highest number out of anyone on this list, that give her a score of 119.54, about a point and a half higher than George Clooney. And that is the illustrious, the incredible Catherine Hepburn. Uh, Catherine Hepburn, I believe I was able to watch all of her Oscar-nominated films in preparation for this list, 
and a couple of others. She is... The films that she's in are a little bit varied in terms of level of quality uh, based on what I've seen so far, but her performance in all of them is just amazing. Just amazing. I'm constantly impressed again and again and again every time I watch a new film that she's in. And so starting at the top, she has three films rated in the 90s. And the best, highest one, Oscar-nominated performance in The Philadelphia Story. Uh, the best rom-com movie I have seen to date. Um, I gave it a 99. And between Hepburn, uh, Grant, and Stewart, they are just an incredible trio of actors to be put together on screen. And it's just an incredible... Just a fantastic movie. It's lighthearted. It's fun. But it treats its characters with respect. It gives them time to develop and make the decisions that they would make as the characters that they are. The film does not try to... I don't know. It doesn't fall into the same sensibilities of, you know, like a Katherine Heigl, Jessica Alba type of rom-com that came out in the 2000s. It's just... It's just very well written, and the dialogue is on point, so on point. Number two, Oscar-winning performance in On Golden Pond. Uh, she is. This is one of the last films that Hepburn made, and it is just. I mean, it's just. I know it's just. It's more of a serious film. It's it's more dramatic than. Uh, Philadelphia story you know Hepburn like Clooney had plenty of range from one to the other although I think in Hepburn's case she felt very natural in on both ends of that spectrum uh you know and it was it came much easier to her than I think the dramatic side does for Clooney um but Catherine Hepburn on Golden Pond uh she plays opposite uh, Henry Fonda, who was also born in May, um, but he is in—he's ranked 288th. Does not make the top ten. Uh, so uh, then, number three, her other film in the 90s is another Oscar-winning performance in *The Lion in Winter*. She plays opposite Peter O'Toole, who is also brilliant in this movie. Uh, it's somewhat of a... I don't... It's not a Shakespeare film, but it has that sort of sensibility to it. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what... It, what it's adapted from, if it's adapted from anything. But essentially, Peter O'Toole, king of this castle, intending to leave the... Trying to figure out who he's going to leave his fortune to brings his wife in who like lives across the ocean or sea or whatever and they the whole movie is kind of revolves around Peter O'Toole, Catherine Hepburn and their two or three sons. I want to say two. I think it's three. Three sons and all of these characters sort of attempting to uh figure out who's going to be the successor to Peter O'Toole's uh, 
lineage. And it's just, it's really fun. The, the sort of the wordplay, the backstabbing, the, all of that is just a great, fun, amazing time. And I'm so happy. I don't, I don't know. It's just, it's just really great to see these incredible actors. Um, you know, you've got one of Anthony Hopkins' first films as well. He's playing incredibly. You've got Timothy Dalton in there who does a great job. Um, but it's Hepburn and O'Toole who I think just carry this film all the way to the end. Uh, some So, four films in the 80s, uh, starting out with a film she was not nominated for, which is Bringing Up Baby, uh, which is another sort of rom-commy film. Uh, this one... Uh, has her starring opposite Cary Grant again. Um, and uh, it's it's very good. It's very well written. It just uh, doesn't reach the level that the Philadelphia story does. Um, bring up baby. Bring up baby revolves around a leopard. Uh, which I thought was really fun. It, it just kind of... I'm trying to remember. Uh, they, it's like they... they I forget how they get the leopard, but it just kind of like appear. It's in their house, and they're like trying to hand, deal with it while also hiding it from like other people. And so it seems like a really silly premise, uh, something that like you would see in a TV movie today, but... You know, back then, they made those kinds of premises work and and succeed. And uh, it was mostly on the strength of the screenwriting, which is very good. It's very good. Bring up Baby. Very good. Great. Fifth movie, Oscar-nominated performance in The African Queen, uh, opposite Humphrey Bogart. Hepburn gets to be a very strong female character, as almost all of her characters are. And uh, that is, it's kind of a, it's a really dirty movie um, in, in like the dirt, grimy sense of it, sense of the word. And uh, I think Bogart is actually better in the film than, than Hepburn is, uh, but I don't think that he was nominated for, for that role, if I remember correctly. Oh no, that was his win, that was his win, which is, okay, awesome. Okay, it was. It's basically a two two person film, uh, Catherine Hepburn and Humphrey Bogart. Um, no, okay, that's right. Bogart won. Hepburn was just nominated. Uh, then there's Holiday, which also was not a nominated Oscar nominated film for Hepburn. Uh, I'm trying to think. That was the one that takes place in. Italy, Venice, and that's the one where she's pretty much the only person in that movie. Uh, after falling in love with a rich girl, a guy begins to notice that things aren't as peachy as they seem. Uh, this is another one I watched just recently in preparation for this list, and it's great, uh, but you know, it just, it isn't, you know, I mean, we're just going down the list, so it's progressively less 
um, incredible. I don't know. I mean, I mean, her performance is fantastic, but this is a film where the I think the film around her is not as up to the task uh, at at keeping up with her quality of acting. Next up is her uh, another is her third Oscar win for Guess Who's Coming to Dinner uh, with Sydney Poitier about bringing a black man home as her date, her her boyfriend, and the acting in Guess Who's Coming to Dinner is amazing. The premise and plot and, and structure is less so, but it's the acting in that film that really elevates it and brings it up to a new, up to the level that it's at. Um, similarly, her eighth movie, her fourth Oscar win is Morning Glory, which is almost a nothing movie outside of Hepburn's performance. And uh, this might uh, this isn't my favorite performance of hers, but it's definitely up there at the top of it, at top of that list, because she is just on fire. She is just lighting up the screen. Everybody in the movie, it feels, is like hanging on every single word she says even though her character is supposed to be kind of crazy and and everyone's supposed to feel like they don't really understand what's happening uh, but morning glory i love it it's it's a lot of fun another oscar nominated performance is suddenly last summer last summer um Another one I watched in preparation for this list. Um, this one... This one is another sort of three or four person film. Very condensed, very very confined spaces. Where uh, Hepburn plays this mother who is uh, trying to convince uh, the... I forget what... I forget who, who's role, what kind of a role, um, who is it? Montgomery Clift. I forget exactly what his role is, but he's essentially trying to suss out whether or not this death is, uh, meets, you know, is, is, is how, what it appears to be, as well as if the cousin of the deceased is insane while you've got Catherine Hepburn, who plays the mother of the deceased, I think, or, or either the mother of the deceased or the mother of the cousin, who is trying to convince Montgomery Clift that she is insane. Um, and so it's an you know it's just another really good dynamic uh, for for her to be playing, and I, I like that a lot. It's I don't think the film really. I think this is one of the films where the the writing isn't quite as strong, but the performances between Clift and uh, Hepburn are are elevated, which it seems to be uh, sort of um, seems to be the sort of the case with a lot of the films that she's been in. Another Oscar-nominated performance, Long Day's Journey into Night, which is good. Uh, definitely a weaker film overall. It's very long which is also problematic, um, but it, it is, 
again, I mean, I, there's nothing bad I can say about her performances in them. Uh, then her, uh, one of her two average rated films is Alice Adams. And she simply plays a girl who is kind of finally like meets the man that she's always dreamed of. And it's a very standard rudimentary film. It would probably be a bad film without the really good performances in it. But uh, that ultimately pulls it up to an average rated film. And uh, another Oscar nominated film, Summertime. (laughs) It seems like they're all Oscar nominated, but... She was just that good. Uh, Summertime, much more of a middle-aged film. This is the film where she travels to Venice, actually. Not the other one. I knew that one was not as good. Uh, And then finally, her only bad film, also Oscar-nominated, is Woman of the Year. Uh, my summary is two opposites attract and repel as their lifestyles clash with their chemistry. And I don't remember much of it. I watched it uh, two years ago. But it's not awful. Uh, it's only rated 43. So it's fairly highly rated bad movie. Um, because, you know, when you've got someone like Katherine Hepburn in your film, it's difficult to be bad. So... Holiday and Bringing a Baby are the two films of her on this list of hers that were not nominated for Oscars. Everything else she was with four wins. And that boosts her up to 17th overall. So both Hepburns, uh, Audrey and Catherine, in the top 10 for May currently. Uh, and I have plenty of more films, plenty of other films of theirs to, to watch going forward as well. So that's number six. Catherine Hepburn. Number five uh, is an actor born May 24th, 1965. He is still alive. And I've seen 34 films that he's been in. With an average film rating of 68.26. One of the lower average film ratings on this list. Uh, And just a single Oscar nomination to his name. He has a value of 53 which puts his score at 122.26, so uh, about two and a half points higher than Katherine Hepburn to be ranked 12th overall, so five spots above her. Um, and so five of the top 12, almost half, are people born in May. And that is the illustrious and oftentimes very funny John C. Riley. Um, John C. Riley. A lot of films. We're going to crush through these guys real quick now. Uh, starting at the top, we have The Good Girl, uh, which is a film I don't really remember. Uh, the Good Girl, I watched it in December of 2012. And um, even looking at my summary of it, I don't really remember it. But his second film is Carnage, which is, if I'm, if I'm remembering it correctly, yes, two couples that meet to talk about their children um, when one of the kids hits the other kid in the face with a stick. And it's, I think, uh, John C. Riley, uh, Jodie Foster. Jeez, let me look it up. 
Kate Winslet, Christoph Waltz, Jodie Foster, and John C. Riley. The only four actors in the movie, and I loved it. The, it's sort of the, the confined space film, and it's highly enjoyable. Love the dialogue, love the exchanges, love just everything about it. Really great. Number three, a film that doesn't really need a lot of explanation, that's Boogie Nights. Uh, I'm sure I've talked about this before in one of the other top ten actor lists. It had to have come up there. And uh, all of those things ring true here. As for John C. Riley's role, it's very interesting. Um, you know, he's a lot younger in this movie, so it's very strange, given what the roles he's been in now have been, to see him sort of like as a porn star. <laughs> but uh, they made it work. Then you've got his voice role in Wreck It Ralph, which is. I think his voice acting is good, not not great. I think the movie it succeeds better uh, than his voice role does on their own, which isn't to say that his voice acting is bad, uh, just that it doesn't meet the same level of quality that the film does, which is kind of why it's at the lower end in the 90s scale. In the 80s scale, you have What's Eating Gilbert Grape, uh, which he has a smaller role. Um, but that's more of like, that's more of like a Leo, that's more of Leonardo DiCaprio's film, kind of. He, he steals that film. Uh, then you've got Guardians of the Galaxy, a minor role again. Um, you've got The Hours, uh, Gangs of New York, Cedar Rapids. Uh, you know, a lot of these films where uh, he's one of those actors that doesn't generally doesn't have the spotlight and oftentimes sort of puts in a very solid, very strong uh, sec- supporting character, secondary role, um, even so far as uh, I would say in Guardians of the Galaxy is more of a bit role than anything else. Um, but uh, he does good work in those roles and helps to make those movies as good as they are. Where you get to his 10th film, which is Terry, uh, which is actually a very, very good film, and uh, one that John C. Riley has a very big role in, one of the main roles, main characters in that film. And he's highly successful in it. You know, he's able to play this dramatic role. He's definitely more of a comedic character, com- comedic character actor, uh, sort of overall, but uh, he is able to shoulder a, a dramatic film uh, with very much very a lot of ease in in Terry uh, which is amazing next up we have the thin red line uh, I believe this came up in somebody else's uh, list this uh, Molina I think or or I think I didn't really say anything about it. I still don't have too much to say about it. It's been a very long time since I've seen The Thin Red Line. Since, uh, well, very long, uh, two years. <laughs> but that feels like a very long time to me. Um, but I think I remember balancing you know, the story narrative film versus the performances. I think the story narrative film aspect of this, of The Thin Red Line, is a little bit better. But... The performances in it are, are very, very, very strong. 
but I don't really remember it too much. Uh, next, you've got 2015's The Lobster. Um, Colin Farrell, uh, Oscar-nominated for its screenplay this year. And uh, John C. Riley is just amazing in it. Uh, you know, you've got... He's just fantastic. Um, he plays sort of... This, he plays a supporting role again, but he does a great job in that very odd fictional universe uh, then you've got the ensemble magnolia the other ensemble sing um which came out last year john c Riley does not sing in the movie uh he plays that he plays the uh the like nephew or grandson goat to to the like famous singer in the movie i think they're goats Hmm. He was in The Aviator, but he was also in Walk Hard, The Dewey Cox Story, where he does sing. And The Dewey Cox Story is very funny. Uh, a great parody of, like, um, of, of sort of the Johnny Cash style of music and uh, style of... of um, of, of sort of biopic. Um, let me see here. Let me see here. Let me see here. Walk the Line is the title of the movie I was thinking of. Um, next up, you go to... We're, we're in the 70s rated films right now. Another musical film where he was his only Oscar nomination for a supporting actor in Chicago. Uh, best Picture winner, Chicago. And he is great in uh, Cellophane. His, pretty much his big song, Mr. Cellophane. Uh, I love that song. I think he does wonderful with it. And uh, he can sing. He does a good job in, in these sort of Broadway musical types of roles. I don't know if he has a Broadway background or not. Um, he does kind of seem like the kind of person who did, who would. But I haven't, I've never heard that he has, so I'm not sure if that's the case. Next up is Cyrus, another sort of dramatic role where he has a big support main character performance. Um, and again, another another film like that where he succeeds. Then you've got another, uh, another comedy, Talladega Nights, The Ballad of Ricky Bobby. And his collaborations with Will Ferrell are numerous. And frequently successfully funny, not necessarily successful in terms of the quality. Talladega Nights is the best of those films, and uh, we'll kind of touch on those as we get to them. His last film, rated in the 70s, is a film that I rate higher than I think almost everyone else does, and that is a film called Nine, which is an animated film. I believe it's produced by Tim Burton. Um, but it's about these little puppet guys, and I think John C. Raleigh is the secondary, the second lead in that movie. Uh, I just, I really like it. I think it's really fun and enjoyable. Uh, I rewatched it recently, and I found it to be just as charming uh, as it was before, the first time I watched it. Next up, we have a 2017 film, Kong Skull Island, his highest rated film in the 60s. 
which is just a really good fun movie. John C. Riley has the best performance in the movie. Um, and I think is still currently a supporting actor candidate in the Circle of Film Awards for 2017. Um, just, I don't know, it's a fun movie and has good effects, good action. Um, and I, I liked it, I liked it a lot. His next collaboration with Will Ferrell, Anchorman 2, The Legend Continues. Uh, he wasn't in the first Anchorman, so I think... He just has sort of a cameo in this one. But it is very funny. It's very funny. He's in We Need to Talk About Kevin, which is more of a Tilda Swinton, Ezra Miller film. He kind of plays the absent, excuse me, absent father role, which isn't a role that I would have naturally seen him as. But again, like he plays these roles that you... He has a, a huge range of versatility that you really don't uh, think about when you're just kind of thinking of Step Brothers, Anchorman, uh, Talladega Nights. Uh, then he's in Heart Eight, uh, The Promotion. Those round out his films that are rated above 60. You move into the average rated films, Step Brothers. Uh, I think very funny, but uh, the quality is not really up to par. And then Tale of Tales, which is kind of a, it's a three-part film that I don't think fully succeeds. I'm trying to remember what part he was in, and whether or not that was one of the better parts or not. It probably was, but I don't fully remember it. I'm pretty sure his part was the one, also the part with Selma Hayek. But the film overall is just uh, average. Next up is Adam Sandler's Anger Management, which is funny but bad. Uh, Dark Water is more of a horror movie. I think he should stay away from horror movies. Uh, he has a small role in Tenacious D in The Pick of Destiny. Um, he's also in The Perfect Storm with Clooney. So we can just kind of repeat what I said there. He's in Deal of the Century, which I don't remember at all deal of the century so many acts uh, that i saw it in 2012 um an arms dealer takes over contract when a man kills himself from the pressure i don't remember that at all it is a comedy so it's perfect for sensibilities i probably gonna assume that the writing in it was bad though life after beth uh, he is more of a minor character in that. Uh, it's Aubrey Plaza. Then his only awful film is Never Been Kissed. Never Been Kissed is a terrible, terrible, terrible movie. With, is that Renee Zellweger? Sean Whalen. Lily Sobieski, Andrew Wilson, David Arquette. Molly Shannon, Alan Covert, Covert, Jordan Ladd, Drew Barrymore. Not, yeah, Drew Barrymore. Um, so that is the last film in John C. Riley's filmography, who is ranked fifth in May. Uh, his birthday is today, 
as of recording this this episode. So, number four is an honorary Academy Award winning actor, born May twentieth, nineteen oh eight, passed away in July second, nineteen ninety seven, at the age of eighty nine. He gave us some incredible films. Uh, I've I've got five Oscar nominations and one win for him at the moment. Uh, I've seen 17 films that he's been in for an average rating of 77.94. Uh, his value is a 40, which puts his score at 123.94. He is ranked number 10. We are in the top 10. Four of the top 10 were born in May, which is just astounding uh you know he's got a point one and point seven points on top of john c Riley, and we're going to see a lot of fil- a couple of films that at least one film that we've already heard of uh, and he is this is a very top heavy actor so 17 films total seven of them are rated in the 90s and only two of them are rated below a 60 and so we'll start out with his Oscar win, and this is James Stewart, Jimmy Stewart, in The Philadelphia Story. Uh, he played opposite Catherine Hepburn, Cary Grant, and I think steals the show out from under them. Uh, it's very difficult to do that with Catherine Hepburn by herself, and when you throw in Cary Grant, uh, you know you need a really high-quality actor to be able to pull off uh, stealing the show from the two of them. And Jimmy Stewart is one of the few actors who was capable of something that, like that. He gives an incredible performance um, in The Philadelphia Story. Next up is Anatomy of a Murder. I actually prefer... I think I prefer James Stewart in comedic romantic roles, actually... Um, He gives some amazing dramatic performances that we're going to list because most of his best films are dramatic performances. Anatomy of a Murder, Oscar nominated. Vertigo, uh, one of the best films ever created based on sight and sound, I believe, who just put it as number one. It's a Wonderful Life, Oscar nominated. Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, Oscar nominated. Um, Incredible. Just, he's very good. He, He, you know, it, Sometimes it can feel like he's playing the same role, but on the whole, I think he's able to sort of adapt to each film in subtle and and difficult to notice at first, but by the end of it, you definitely real feel like these are different characters. Uh, it's just it's very impressive the way he's able to put in these performances that are so layered, so multifaceted, um, and just sort of hiding different elements beneath the surface in each one of them. Uh, yeah, uh, so then his sixth film, uh, The Shop Around the Corner, another back going, moving back to the romantic comedy element of his, his acting, this is a very this is a film that he was in very young and it's just I was just I watched it for this like within the last month or so and it just it was just so moving. I I thought it was just so emotional, so it resonated with me 
a lot. Um, it's you know a film. It's a type of film that's been done to death by this point, but at the time it was probably very fresh and original, and I could feel that in the movie. And James Stewart has a fa- is fantastic in it. Uh, and then his seventh film, his last film right in the 90s, is Rear Window. Another incredible dramatic performance. And, uh, you know, he is no stranger to Hitchcock. And his collaborations with Hitchcock are, are legendary. <laughs> For truly legendary. He only has one film right in the 80s, and that's Rope, which is another Hitchcock film that is... Um, Notable for the fact that it is effectively one long take. I think it's actually two long takes because it's cut somewhere toward the middle. Uh, but like that in and of itself is it is an accomplishment to be a part of. Into the seventies, uh, another Oscar name performance, Oscar nominated performance in Harvey. Sort of more of a comedic. Um, uh, I'm trying to not. I'm trying to think of the right word for this role. The movie is strange, uh, very strange. But you have such an endearing performance from James Stewart that it makes things seem even you know for not just the characters in the movie, but for the viewer as well. Like things just seem natural, and it seems okay. And he just has a very calm collected way of speaking and it all comes out very natural in the end um yeah then you've got the man who shot liberty valance liberty valance valance (laughs) uh which is you know i haven't seen a lot of james stewart's westerns uh but i think that this is a good one um john wayne is awful I don't know how, how he ever became a famous actor. I think he's a terrible actor. Um, but James Stewart makes up for it in that film. Next up is The Mortal Storm. Which I'm trying to remember. Is um, The Rise to Power of the Nazis Divides a Family. I watched this in March, I believe, for a scavenger hunt. I, God, I don't really remember much about it. I'm sure I talked about it in the March review to some degree, though. Uh, then his 12th film, his last film rated right in the 70s, is an animated film, so he lends his voice talents to an American tale, Five Goes West. It has been an age since I've seen this, and I don't really remember what his role was, let alone much about the film. Then you've got The Man from Laramie, uh, another sort of Western uh, the Far Country, and The Man Who Knew Too Much, all of his, the rest of his good, rate, highly rated films to round out his top 15. Then, two bad films are How the West Was Won, a huge ensemble, where I think James Stewart was actually very good in it, uh, but uh, it is not a film that succeeds as a whole, in my opinion. It's just, it's all over the place. You've got three directors on five segments. And it just felt very, 
I don't know. It didn't. It felt so so it felt so unnecessary. Really, that's all. It's very unnecessary. And finally, he has a role in The Condemned, which is ridiculous, uh, to say the least, because it's. I feel like that's impossible, though. I have to. I have to have made a mistake here in some way because i've seen this here before unless it's some sort because like he died 10 years before this movie came out so unless i'm thinking of something different and i feel like i must but let me just look at this again oh there's a james stewart in this movie it is not the James Stewart. So, do I have him? Because that's, that's pretty significant that his worst film is not accurate. It is. So, hold on a second, guys. Hold on a second. We have breaking news right now. We're going to get rid of the condemned off of this list. He is not. So, How the West Was Won is his worst movie. So, this will greatly affect him we'll see it's probably not going to break him over past the third ranked person so we should be okay as far as ranking goes it improves his average film rating to an 80.56 the highest average film rating in the top 10 that alone puts him at uh, ninth instead of 10th and then we remove one of his bad films so his score is now 127.56 that only moves him up one spot uh so he just gained like four points and moved up one spot. That's how tough it is at the top of this, these rankings to, to gain space, to gain spots. Anyway, so uh, How the West Was One is the last one. It's only 16 films that he's been in. Ranked ninth overall now. James Stewart, number four. Number three, uh, ranked fifth overall. So three of the top five are from Born in May. Born May 14th, 1969, still living. She has been in 34 films that I've seen with an average film rating of 68.82. Seven Academy Award nominations, two Academy Award wins for an, a value of 56, the highest so far and third highest overall to give her a score of 133.82. We're way up there in the scores right now because you go back to Audrey Hepburn who had who has a score of 103. We are 30 points above her, and we still have two pace, two spots up left to go. This is the goddess uh, who, of almost perfection, Kate Blanchett. Oscar nominated for her performance in Carol uh, the other uh, last year. That's her best film. Carol is is incredible. Uh, Kate Blanchett and Rooney Mara are perfect in it. Um, just the way that the camera lavishes over Kate Blanchett in this movie is so deserving of, of who this actor actor is. She truly is like a, a timeless beauty and one of the most incredible actors. Uh, similarly to Katherine Hepburn, she can take on any role and it feels beautifully natural. And she is far more versatile than Katherine Hepburn ever has been. 
because her second highest rated film is The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King, followed by The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, where she plays Galadriel, uh, the elf queen, which is a type of role that I've never seen from Catherine Hepburn. Uh, but Kate Blanchett is able to step into that type of a role very easily. And while her role is not very big in the Lord of the Rings movies, she leaves you leaves a very lasting impression on you when you see her. Her fourth highest rated film and her only her last film rated in the nineties is How to Train Your Dragon Two. Uh, she plays. Uh, Oh, I can't think of the name, main. I can't think of Jay Baruchel's name in the film, but she plays his mother, uh, and is awesome at it. Uh, her voice stands out, and you know, like one of the most recognizable voices. She is just very powerful. Uh, even even without her face, you, she is incredibly powerful as an actor. Then you round out the Lord of the Rings trilogy with Fellowship of the Rings at number five. Second Oscar-nominated performance is Notes on a Scandal. Uh, I believe that's with Judy Dench, if I'm correct. Um, and it's been a little while for that one, but that's that's like that's another shift. That's more of a dramatic role, not really a romantic role. Move into comedy elements with Hot Fuzz, uh, which she is able to succeed at. Then you've got the talented Mr. Ripley. Um, then a third Oscar-nominated performance, and one, and yet again another uh, layer to just how incredibly com- uh, chameleonic is that the way to turn chameleon into an adjective? Chameleonic, chameleonic, chameleon-like, chameleon-like performance in I'm Not There, Oscar-nominated, where she plays Bob Dylan, one of the many actors that plays Bob Dylan in that movie. Uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, what can't she do? Really? Like, what can't she play? Uh, her number 10 film is Night of Cups. See a lot of people who don't like this movie. Uh, Terrence Malick has kind of gone crazy <laughs> almost but i was really taken by knight of cups i thought it was really powerful and and very moving i i love the it was the first time that i i really the only time really that i liked this sort of style from malik um and i think a lot of that has to do with the christian bale being at the center of the movie and uh, the supporting characters around him. Um, his recent film, Song to Song, is very similar to Knight of Cups, but I don't think... I think that Knight of Cups succeeds where Song to Song fails, ultimately. Uh, number 11 is Babel. Um, still ranked... We're still in the films rated in the 80s. There are 10 of them total. Uh, then she narrates a documentary called Girl Rising, she was the evil stepmother in Cinderella. And then she's uh, reprises her role of Galadriel in Hobbit, The Desolation of Smaug. So we're 14 films in. She can play anywhere from Bob Dylan to an animated 
warrior mother to the queen of the elves to the object of affection to anything anything she can be anything anything she plays herself twice in coffee and cigarettes uh so another film she shares with a film she shares with alfred molina uh they're not in the same scene um, but it's sort of two cape Blanchettes, which is overload <laughs> uh one is like put together the other is sort of like falling apart and so like it's that dynamic I believe she's the main female lead in The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. And then one of her Oscar wins is for The Aviator, where she plays Katherine Hepburn. Uh, it's all just coming together. <laughs> um, I was a l- I'm was a little lower on The Aviator than I feel like I should be. Uh, I have it. It's her 17th highest rated film, and I believe I have it rated 70... 14. 77 uh, overall and it's a film I saw very early on when I started to keep track of films and so it's one I want to go back and revisit at some point just to make sure I have it where I want it to be next is Hannah the Saoirse Ronan uh, sort of uh, action is not really how I would describe that movie but I don't really have a better way to describe it than action. Then her 19th film, her second Oscar win, which came a couple of years ago, is Blue Jasmine, the Woody Allen film that definitely, in my opinion, falls apart around Kate Blanchett, but she is just such a tour de force in this movie that it's impossible to deny how amazing she is. Um, truly, truly stunning work. From her and Blue Jasmine. Number 20 is Elizabeth, Oscar nominated performance, uh, which is fine. I, I'm not, I wasn't super impressed by the film or even really her performance in it. She's very good, but it's not, it doesn't stand out to me as much as some of her other roles. She reprises her role again as Galadriel in The Hobbit and Unexpected Journey. She is one of the voices in the English voice cast for Ponyo. Um, she is opposite. I just said his name not too long. Brad Pitt in the Curious Case of Benjamin Button, which is a strange film, and uh, her ability to act opposite of Brad Pitt's de aging is is impressive. You know, I think Brad Pitt gets a lot of most of the credit for this movie, but some of it definitely needs to go to Kate Blanchett as well. Then she is in a short, uh, hold on, make sure, short documentary called Slow Motion, um, which is very short. She or no, it's not a documentary. It's she's just playing herself in it. Um, it's only like two minutes long, but. Kate Blanchett for two minutes in slow motion is giving, somehow is still giving you a very high quality performance. That's the last of her good high rated movies, a couple of average rated movies, uh, The Shipping News, uh, the aforementioned Song to Song from from this, from technically 2016, didn't really come out till this year, 
and Making a Scene, which is another fi- uh, sort of short film with a lot of big-name actors that are kind of recreating uh, iconic scenes. Uh, this one is a little bit better than Touch of Evil, and so it is given the average rating as far as uh, as opposed to the bad one. Uh, moving into the bad movies, an Oscar-nominated performance is Elizabeth the Golden Age. Very inferior when compared to the first Elizabeth film. Uh, but Kate Blanchett is still good in it. Um, tw- number 29, she reprises her role as Galadriel yet again in The Hobbit, The Battle of the Five Armies. Um, but she's kind of insignificant in that movie. Uh, Robin Hood with Russell Crowe. She plays Marion, and she is she is the light in that movie. She is the reason that movie is even watchable, in my opinion. She's very, very good in it. Uh, most everybody else is not. But the dynamic between her and Russell Crowe, uh, when they realize that they're going to have to pretend to be husband and wife, is, is, is very enjoyable to see, and I, I like that a lot. Then we've got The Gift, The Good German again, and then we move into the two awful films that she's been in. One we've already mentioned, which is The Monuments Men with George Clooney, and the other is one of the most hated films that I've ever listened to people talk about, and that is Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Whew. Uh, she is good in the movie, to be fair. And is one of the biggest reasons as to why the film is not given like an even worse rating. It's currently got a 21. Uh, so could be a lot worse. But Kate Blanchett does give a very strong performance in that movie. Despite itself. So Kate Blanchett. Number 3 in May. Number 5 overall. Um, has been ranked as high as number 2. Uh, during the time that I've made this list but has since fallen a little bit to fifth place. Still, I mean, out of... She is one of the... uh, Let me see here. Come on, spreadsheet. She's one of the 33 actors on my list to have been in at least 34 movies. Um, Clooney uh, has been in 35, which is... a, a which is a which is a club exclusively for 29 people. Um, and those 29 people also includes our number two person on this list, who is ranked fourth overall. Uh, she was born in May of in 20, the 26th of May in 1966, so three years older than Kate Blanchett, and still living. Uh, I've seen 35 films of hers, so not, again, one of the 29 people with 35 films to their name. She has an average film rating of 70.89, very good, given how many films she's been in. And even more surprising, has not been in a film rated below 25, so no awful films, only a few bad ones. Two Oscar nominations, um, and in my opinion, should be more than two, honestly. Uh, but her value is a 63, which is the second highest value uh, in May, and the third highest value of all time. Uh, so, 
That gives her a score of 135.89, so two points higher than Kate Blanchett to go up one spot. Um, and that is one of my favorite actors of all time, Helena Bonham Carter. Helena Bonham Carter. Number four overall, number two in May. And just, I think she's fantastic. And I'm so excited to jump into the movies that she's been in. And we're going to do that. And we're going to start with one of the most iconic films that she's been in, one of the most referenced films of all time, particularly uh, in this day and age, and that is Fight Club. Fight Club largely rests on Brad Pitt and Edward Norton to carry this film. But I think Helen Bonham Carter, Best Supporting Actress nomination, I should have been. I don't know who was nominated that year. Should have been her. She is brilliant in it. Um, simply for the fact that once you get to the end and realize that Brad Pitt and Edward Norton were the same person all along, uh, she has been acting as if they were when they're being portrayed by two different people. And, like, that, that is not easy to do. She gives an incredible performance in Fight Club. I'm very impressed. Uh, I wouldn't... Mm, definitely a top five performance from Helena Bonham Carter for me, but I don't think it's number one. Um, then we've got some animated films. Uh, so she's been in five films right in the 90s. Uh, nine films were in the 80s, eight films in the 70s, five films in the 60s. So a total of 27 films of her, 27 of her 35 films above are, are good, highly rated films. Um, two animated films uh, next are Corpse Bride and Wallace and Gromit, The Curse of the Were-Rabbit. Uh, Corpse Bride, uh, more of a Tim Burton sensibility film, Tim Burton's Corpse Bride. Uh, but Wallace and Gromit, The Curse of the Were-Rabbit, is a much more traditional uh, animated affair with a more toned-down atmosphere. Um, but, you know, Tim Burton, I've, I'm no... Uh, I don't pull any punches when it comes to Tim Burton because I love almost everything he does. And because Helena Bonham Carter was married to him and in most of his movies, that's a big reason why she's so highly comes so highly rated and i am not going to apologize for that because she's a great actor uh corpse bride i think is better than walls and gromit um not by a huge margin by a slim margin but i just i just enjoy corpse bride a lot more the musical elements of it uh and uh just the, the sort of way it is but curse of the Rabbit is incredible as well i mean it's it's I give it a 92. 92, yes. Then you've got Live from Baghdad, which is an HBO movie with her and Michael Keaton. Um, it's sort of in the similar style. It's kind of draws some parallels to Argo, although it came out before Argo. Uh, but Hannah Bonham Carter and Michael Keaton are, are great in it and really elevate it it's a very good movie otherwise but they elevate it to another level with their performances then one of her two oscar nominations is for the king speech which i actually i think is a great movie i just think that it was 
overrated by most people who saw it because it is not as good as the social network, a social, the social network whatsoever. Uh, and I think that, um, what's his name? Colin Firth is, is not really a great actor. He's good, but he's not great. Then moving on to the films right in the eighties, you've got a room with a view Howard's end. Uh, Howard's end is, what is she in Howard's end? I just watched this. Um, I think I did. Yeah. Man towards the request of an estate by his wife. I, God, I fucking don't remember that at all. Howard's end. Because that you've got Emma Thompson, right? Emma Thompson and uh, Anthony Hopkins and Vanessa Redgrave. Right, 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 right. And the source of the stage to another woman. Man, I need like a bigger summary. Um, Man, I am blanking on this one very hard. I don't fully get why. (laughs) Um, She was good in it. That's all I know. Uh, It's, I think the problem is it's like running together with uh, another film. Emma Thompson is the standout in this movie, not Hannah Bonham Carter. But they're both very good in it. Anthony Hopkins is very good. Vanessa Redgrave, Redgrave, very good. But, man, I don't really remember too much of it. Um, We'll move on from that. Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. Uh, She plays... Um, fuck, I am really not, this is not, not doing too well right now. Uh, Helena Bonham Carter, huh, Helena Bonham Carter plays, uh, Bellatrix Lestrange, come on, plays Bellatrix Lestrange in the Harry Potter series, one of the best cast, casting decisions in my opinion, although that entire franchise is so impeccably cast that it's hard to say that any of them are not well cast uh, but she is just completely deranged as Bellatrix, Bellatrix Lestrange um, that's her 8th highest rated film, number 9 is Les Mis, Les Miserables from 2012 I think maybe 2011 2012, 2011. She sings. She has a great singing voice. Uh, she plays one of the. She plays the wife of Sasha Baron Cohen, um, who is in, in the who is the master of the house, uh, which is one of the songs you hear in my um, sort of uh, clips that I play during my podcast. And uh, I mean, she's not a significant, real, a really super significant role in this movie. But she's great comedic relief uh, opposite Sasha Baron Cohen and gives a solid performance. She lends her voice to a short film called The Gruffalo um, and then is in another musical that I think is great in Sweeney Todd, the Demon Barber of Fleet Street. Uh, she is 
a much more significant role in this than she is in Les Mis, opposite Johnny Depp, uh, who is another frequent Tim Burton collaborator. And they are both amazing in this movie. I love it. It's it's just so it it relishes its its disgustingness and, and evilness, and I, I think that's amazing. I love it so much. Um, another Tim Burton film that she was in is Big Fish, which I don't have a great memory of, uh, but it's more of a Ewan McGregor movie. I think Helena Bonham Carter's role is much more minor. Then you've got a second, another Harry Potter movie, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 1. She was the fairy godmother in Cinderella, which is incredibly against type uh, based on all the Tim Burton movies she's been in. And yet she succeeds as that, as fairy godmother. I don't, it's crazy. I mean, she does an incredible job, I think. Then Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2 as Bellatrix Strange again. Uh, then she's in the Tim Burton Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Um, but, you know, she's, again, a smaller role. Conversations with Other Women is an Aaron Eckhart film. With Other Women. I believe from 20, 2005, uh, two people meet at a wedding and catch up. Hmm. Yeah, she just plays woman in conversations with other women. Yeah, it's Helena Bonham Carter and Aaron Eckhart. They both, neither of them are named at the in the film. Uh, it's it's a really interesting film, and it's shot really well. Um, and I love the dynamic between Eckhart and Carter. I think that they bring a lot of interesting elements to that movie. And it's and it's not it's more than just sort of this romantic thing. They actually, you know, they're people, and which is so strange when you factor in the fact that neither of them are named in the movie, but that adds sort of an air of mystery to the whole thing. Next up is Mighty Aphrodite, the Woody Allen film. Then you've got uh, Tim Burton's Alice in Wonderland, where she plays the Queen of Hearts. which is a great role for her. She plays crazy and insane very well, and that uh, describes the Queen of Hearts to a T. Then there's her second and other only other Oscar-nominated performance in *The Wings of the Dove*, which is uh, a film from 1997. Um, And my summary for that is a woman trying to spend her life with the man she desires discovers that it isn't quite so easy. Uh, This is a film that, you know, she is the lead character in it. uh, And it's it's very older. It's much older. I mean, it's 20 years old now. And Helena Bonham Carter feels 20 years younger uh, in it. That doesn't make sense. I don't know. what I don't know what I'm saying. Uh, she's younger. I don't think she'd quite uh, really um, saw, figured out like what kind of an actor she was at this point. I think that I don't I wouldn't put this in my top five performances of hers uh, at all. but I'm glad she got the nomination for this movie 
because it is a very good movie uh, and she is very good in it but it, she's not great she's not iconic in that in my, in sort of the same way that she was in like fight club for example um that is her 20th highest rated film uh, 21st is 12th night which i just watched recently and 12th night is one of my favorite shakespeare stories um i definitely tend to prefer all of shakespeare's comedies to his dramas and tragedies and she plays the she plays the woman that falls in love with the male version of Olivia uh, who ends up with the brother of Olivia. Viola? Fuck, I'm running the names of Twelfth Night and the names from She's the Man together. The main character who plays a, who play, who's a female who play, poses as a man, Helen Bonham Carter's character falls in love with the man version of that character and then ultimately ends up with the brother of that character is her role. Anyway, Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince reprising her role again, Bellatrix Lestrange. She is then in a film, her 23rd highest rated film is called Toast. Toast is a film from 2011, and it is a, a boy infatuated with fine cuisine and cooking loses his mother, leaving him alone with his father. I think Helena Bonham Carter is the mother, or maybe... Uh, maybe not. No, she, it's a TV movie, mostly, uh, starring Helena Bonham Carter and Freddie Highmore um, in Britain. And she plays sort of the stand-in mother, uh, I guess you would say. Uh, she's the, like, uh, housekeeper, I guess. Um, sort of nurturing the son, the kid, back to sort of... Uh, I don't know what the term I'm looking for is. Nurturing him back to being able to, uh, you know, just kind of can, can keep up himself. I don't know. I, I, I think you know what I'm trying to say, but I'm not saying it very well. Next is a short film called A Therapy, where Helena McCarter, like walks into therapy, walks out of therapy. She has on this gorgeous coat. Um, I think that Ben Kingsley is also in this, and Ben Kingsley like, tries on the coat. <laughs> I think it's really funny. It's just a cute little short film. Next up is another short film that anima that's animated called The Gruffalo's Child, sequel to The Gruffalo. Not as good. Um, doesn't have the originality, but still a solid film. Then you've got Burton and Taylor. Um, Elizabeth Taylor, which is... Helen Ron Carter plays Elizabeth Taylor. Uh, brilliantly. Um, I don't remember who plays uh, Burton, but... I think that Helen Von Carter far outshines him. And then her last good movie, perhaps controversial, Planet of the Apes. Like I said, I, I'm a sucker for Tim Burton. This is not one of Tim Burton's best movies and doesn't really have the Tim Burton sensibility to it that most of them do. There's a lot of silliness in this movie uh, outside of Mark Wahlberg, who is in himself very silly as an actor. But at the end of the day, I just, I had a lot of, I have a lot of fun watching this movie. I've seen it many times. I think it's just a very enjoyable movie. Um, definitely doesn't hold a candle to the original, but 
most films, most remakes don't. Um, the whatever you want to say about the film, narratively, structurally, performance-wise, ultimately the the look of the apes is great for the time. Like it, it brings them to life impeccably for what that year for that year. And I loved Helena Bottom Carter's character. Uh, she plays the main female ape in it. She does a great job. Moving on to the average rated films, you've got uh, just a pair of them, Hamlet uh, and Suffragette. Suffragette, I really wanted to be better than it was, um, but it was just mediocre for me. And uh, Hamlet, I think she plays the sister. I'm trying to remember which version of Hamlet this is because it's not Laurence Olivier's version. No, it is the 1990 film, Hamlet. Uh, and it's been six years since I've seen that. Um, then her bad films are Maurice, which is a period piece. Uh, Terminator Salvation, which is just bad. Dark Shadows, one of the absolutely one of the actually bad Tim Burton films. Seems like it should have been good. Should it, like it had all the parts, but it, I think it suffered from bad writing. Then she was in the sequel, Alice Through the Looking Glass, which did not hold up. Uh, the Lone Ranger is really bad. And then her worst film is Great Expectations. Which is... Um, from 2013, uh, just above at a 25, so it just narrowly avoids being an awfully rated film. And uh, yeah, so those are the 35 films that I've seen with Helena Bonham Carter in them. I love Helena Bonham Carter, one of my favorite actors of all time, and my fourth highest rated. She has been as high as ranked second as well. Um, has never hit that number one spot only a few people have uh, but she has been in the top for the i think since the beginning she's been in toward the top maybe not always in the top 10 but has all for the last few years she's been in the top 10 consistently but i don't think she started out in the top 10 so moving on to our number one not just born in May, but overall. This is the number one person on my spreadsheet ever. Uh, this person has been number one since they were added to the spreadsheet and has not fallen uh, at all. Uh, this person is born in May on May 20th in 1940. So this person is 77 years old at, at this moment. They have been in 48 films that I have seen. 48 is, I believe, the third highest number of films that I've seen someone in. Um, with uh, So Samuel L. Jackson has been in the second most number of films, and that is 72. And then recent addition to the list, Frank Welker, a voice actor, 
has been in 94 films that I've seen, which is just absurd, actually. It's just actually absurd. Uh, but that, these are not the people we are talking about at this moment. We are talking about Sherry Lynn, also a voice actress, uh, who has been in 48 films I've seen. And I have gone out of my way to try to watch bad films that she's been in because she is so highly rated. It's it's not it's not even close. Uh, so her average film rating is a seventy one point one nine. She has been in fourteen, twenty three, thirty five, thirty eight films. Of her forty eight films are positively rated films. To give her a value of 96. So Helena Bonham Carter, who has the third highest value, ranked fourth, has a 63, which is just two-thirds the score, almost two-thirds the score of Sherry Lynn. And the third highest value is a 64. So she has 32 points on top of the third highest value. <laughs> to give her a score of 167.19, which is 28 points higher than the second rated person overall, and 32 points higher than Helena Bottom Carter. So, Sherry Lynn, as a voice actor, has been in essentially all the Pixar movies, uh, which is why she is so highly rated, because all the Pixar movies, even the bad Pixar movies, are still good movies for the most part. And the, diff- the problem is that uh, <laughs> Sherry Lynn is not... A prominent role in any of these movies. She's primarily um, adi- listed as quote additional voices, with a couple of notable exceptions. Uh, and uh, so it's very difficult to gauge where she really should be rated, you know. Uh, but for now, she is number one, and I'm. I can't really change that based on the system as it is. All I can try to do is watch more movies that are supposed to be bad that she's been in and hopefully drop her ranking as much as I can. But I have not been able to do that with much success. But because her roles in these films are so minimal, uh, I'm really not going to take too much time to talk about these films as themselves, I would rather spend my time doing that with actors who actually have prominent performances and and roles in them. So we're just going to kind of skim down the films that she's been in top to bottom. Uh, She has been in a film rated 100, and that is Toy Story. She is also in Inside Out, Toy Story 3, Finding Nemo, Toy Story 2, Spirited Away, Beauty and the Beast, the animated version, The Little Mermaid, Kiki's Delivery Service, Wally, Aladdin, Up, Princess Mononoke, Tarzan, The Iron Giant, Old Boy, the original Old Boy, she plays a voice on the phone, uh, A Bug's Life, Shrek 2, Surf's Up, Hercules, The Emperor's New Groove, Monsters Inc., Porco Rosso, Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, Ice Age, Horton Hears a Hue, Riley's First Date, which is a short film based on Inside Out, Ponyo, Monsters University, Despicable Me 2, An American Tale, Five Will Goes West, Brother Bear, 
The Hunchback of Notre Dame, Partysaurus Rex, which is a short film based on Toy Story, Cars, Treasure Planet, Ice Age 2 The Meltdown, Osmosis Jones, 101 Dalmatians, The Lorax, Hocus Pocus, she plays a voice in that as well, Quest for Camelot, DuckTales the movie, Treasure of the Lost Lamp, Black Mass, she plays a voice, uh, Death Becomes Her, she is just a voice on the phone, Minions, Cinderella 2, Dreams Come True, and her worst film, Happily Never After. Now, I do want to give her her due. Um, so, uh, as she is one of the people who has been in a film rated 100. She is currently the person with the highest number of films rated in the 90s, and that is with that is a number of 13. Uh, Frank Welker has been in 12 films rated in the 90s. Samuel Jackson, 11. Um, in films rated in the 70s, uh, Sherry Lynn is number two. Frank Welker has been in 13. Sherry Lynn has been in 12. Uh, she has been in just 10 films rated less than a 60, as I mentioned already, which is the biggest reason why she and not Frank Welker is number one. Uh, so despite the fact that he has almost twice as many film credits as she does, he is, and he has been in 12 films right in the 90s, eight, 11 films in the 80s, 13 films right in the 70s, 10 films in the 60s. So double digits for every category above 50s, um, except for the 100 ranked films. He has also been in 29 fi bad films rated between 25 and 49, and then an additional 13 films rated less than a 25 uh, to be number one in both of those categories. Uh, or no, he's he's number one in the bad films, but he is number tied for second uh, in the awful film category with Adam Sandler edging him out with 14. So, Sherry Lynn <laughs> is amazing. <laughs> um, she's obviously never been nominated for an Oscar. Uh, and I would love to... I wish there was like some sort of supercut of the performances she's done. Because, like, I want to... She, similar to uh, Bess Flowers, who is... Uh, another top 10 actor on my list that doesn't really have a significant role in any of the movies that she's in. I would love to see a, a supercut of like all the performances Best Flowers has been in as an extra and then a supercut of all the voice actor performances that Sherry Lynn has given. Um, but I, I don't know that anyone can really do that. Uh, I don't know. I mean, she's just... It's tough. It's tough to kind of reconcile. So I also have compiled a list of movies that she's been in that I'm yet to watch. Um, and so I have a... A lot of them are anime films, um, but hopefully a lot of them are bad. And they can kind of at least, at least bring her down to earth uh, and not be like on a tier of her own. So here are some of the films of hers that I haven't seen yet. Uh, based on Wikipedia, because Letterboxd, I've seen everything she's been in. IMDb, for the most part, I can, I've seen more, most of the things she's been in, and then Wikipedia. So, Panda Go Panda from 1972, uh, Panda Go Panda Rainy Day Circus, 1973, I Want to Hold Your Hand, 1978, 
A Dog's Life TV Movie 1979, Mobile Suit Gundam 1, 2, and 3. Then Ah My Goddess the Movie, Card Captor Sakura Movie 2, The Dog of Flanders, Ghost in the Shell Standalone Complex Solid State Society, Street Fighter Alpha the Animation, Tenchi Muyu, Asterix and the Big Fight, Christmas in Tattertown, Roadside Romeo, and Star Street, The Adventures of the Star Kids. Just to be upfront, most of these fil- those films sound like absolute garbage. <laughs> uh, so when I do get the chance to watch some of them, hopefully they will tighten the gap between numbers one and two on my spreadsheet. Um, but yeah, since, I, since Sherry Lynn has been on the spreadsheet, she's been number one without any competition and in fact she's previous she's been higherly she's had a higher score than she does now she has never had her value exceed a uh, hit a hundred yet which is impressive um i would have expected it you know if she's in another uh pixar film that's rated in the 90s that would put her value at 100 if that's the next film of hers i see which would be a, a huge landmark. But I think that like things are trending that way. Uh, you know, the top 10 didn't used to be such didn't used to have as high scores as it does now. And I think numbers are on the whole trending a little bit upward. So maybe the gap will get smaller uh, faster than I expected to. But anyway, that is your number one in May, your number one overall, and your top 10 actors born in May. And I'll run down those real quick once again. From 10 to 1, you have Audrey Hepburn, Alfred Molina, Donald Gleason, Donald Gleason, George Clooney, Catherine Hepburn, John C. Riley, James Stewart, Kate Blanchett, Helena Bonham Carter, and Sherry Lynn. Thank you so much for listening. I realize that this has been an incredibly long episode. We are closing in on the three-hour mark, but I'm going to end it up real quick right now. Uh, if you want to check out the website, go to circlefilm.com. If you want to send anything to me, circlefilm at gmail.com. And as always, have a week. So long, farewell, I'll be the same tonight. I know she'll never. Even as she fades from view So long, farewell, I'll be to Saint Edgier In the name of love, one night in the name of love So long, farewell, oh, I'll be to Saint Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute